This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Available every day during the Cricket World Cup. This is the TMS Podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. India have caused one of the greatest upsets in the history of all sport. He goes for it. It's over the boundary. It's six sixes in the over. And Kevin O'Brien from nowhere has scored the fastest hundred in World Cup history. Australia have emphatically won their fifth World Cup by seven wickets. Hello, I'm Simon Mann at Lords. Coming up, we'll have more on Australia's 86-run victory over New Zealand with five more wickets for Mitchell Stark. And we'll hear from England's captain Owen Morgan with Jonathan Agnew ahead of that vital match against India at Edgbaston. But there's only one place to start. Pakistan's nail-biting win against Afghanistan by three wickets with two balls remaining. Daniel Norcross was at Headingley. The TMS podcast at the Cricket World Cup. Thank you, Simon. Well... Well, I am joined by Artif Nawaz because we here have had the most extraordinary game of cricket at Headingley between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Again, a match that I think Afghanistan were expected to lose uh, pretty comfortably. And now it's both Pakistan and India. They have got within an ace of causing an upset. Uh, On this occasion, it would have been an upset that would have been very helpful for England. But they didn't quite managed to do it. They lost in the end. Just two balls to spare. Pakistan limped over the line by three wickets. Artif Nawaz, you are—you look like a man who's seen a ghost. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it was one of the most tense experiences maybe of my cricket-watching life. Right? It was so, so intense towards the end with the, the game kind of tossing and turning and going one way and the other way and it looks like you're done for and then all of a sudden there's hope and then all of a sudden, no, no, you're definitely done for. No, actually, there's a little bit more hope. And it just kind of, it was the most beautiful back and forth kind of narrative the game had towards the end the drama of it it was truly nail-biting truly anxiety inducing truly something that just left people literally on the edges of their seats and jumping up in joy when they finally got the result they wanted every fan thinks that their team puts them through a unique and special form of punishment um but I, I, looking at this with with objective eyes i can honestly say that i've seen quite a bit of pakistan lately and they really do see to provide a unique and special form of punishment for their fans because there was just no reason for for how that game got so tense was there no i mean they started so brightly at the very top of the game they took the w- early wickets you know they put that pressure on afghanistan they looked like they might go through them you know i had some sort of rumblings on uh, on the outfield i was listening to some of the fans and they were talking about oh it might be a short day here oh maybe we can knock them over for 120 150 even with the partnerships building even when pakistan had uh, even when afghanistan had 120 for five you still expected them to be knocked off for about 180 190 so they actually showed a lot of backbone and a lot of kind of guile just to hang in there that 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 kind of um, that spine that team had mm. you know they didn't fold like a deck of cards. Well, I, I well, dare say like Pakistan have done many <laughs> on many occasions they really hung in there and put together what on this pitch was a very competitive total with the ball moving the way it was so it was not a foregone conclusion that Pakistan were going to chase it I mean I, I when asked about it halfway I said I think this is going to be a very tight tense finish Hamid Hassan who has been a stalwart of Afghan cricket and I know in a game of so many errors and so many marginal decisions, they will probably talk about the, the, the poor reviews that both sides used in Pakistan's innings. But in that 
in all of that, Hamid Hassan having to limp off after two overs feels like it, it just hamstrung, if you the, the pun, <laughs> Afghanistan rather badly, didn't it? Because Gulbadin was forced into using himself, he felt. He, maybe if he'd used more of Shenwari earlier on, he might not have needed to, but he, he wanted to have some pace at the death. And it was only he that was able to provide it. And he's not really that, he's not really a death bowler, it doesn't seem to me. Hamid Hassani, he could really have done with it at the back end of Pakistan's innings. I, it's possible that that would have made a significant difference in the game. But these are kind of one percenters that go for you, that go against you sometimes. You know, there was a review that Pakistan had for a wicket, which was overturned on the basis of the ball. It, umpire's cool, but it was, you know, it was, it looked like a lot of the ball. Was, I mean, there's just one, yeah. what I mean is like these things can sometimes go for you. It was that kind of a you. day. It was exactly you that kind of a day. I mean, yeah. well, let's, 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 let's like job back to the very beginning. Yeah. You know, in Afghanistan, I've won the toss, selected about, and they've done that because it was a glorious hot day. I yeah. mean, as everyone in England knows, today is summer and tomorrow it will be autumn again. Um, the, the heat wave. And it did materialise. And the expectation was it would bake the pitch. And Afghanistan, who have, um, let's be clear, in this World Cup, they've underperformed at the start of the tournament when it was murky and green and the ball was flying through. But in the, the latter couple of weeks, their spinners have been given an opportunity and they've really seized it. Mujib, for example, uh, Rashid. So you could see why Afghanistan wanted to bat. Um, I just felt that, you know, you look at this side and you think, no wonder they're not really progressing. They've got all the talent. But they put in their, their wicketkeeper at number four, Ikram Ali Keel, who bats for 64 overs to score 24 runs or whatever it was. I mean, it's <laughs> and it's you've got Najibullah down the order, who saves him. You alluded to, to it already, the backbone, the spine in Afghanistan side. But it looked like they were a team that didn't quite know. They didn't know their best openers. They didn't know their best middle order. They've had five different opening partnerships in the tournament so far. Um, Frankly, it was kind of miracle. They made it to 227. I mean, they did really well to recover to that. But I think, I mean, it's easy to be overly critical of the Afghanistan team. But I just think they've lost a lot of games. And that can be massively disheartening. We saw that kind of chain reaction effect in South Africa a little bit in the way that they performed. And they did come back strong with that final win. But, you know, by then you could you could argue that the game was, you know, the goose was cooked. It's over. So in this instance, I think the fact that Afghanistan pushed Pakistan so close, having lost each of their games in the World Cup so far with Pakistan, coming off two really strong wins particularly the one against New Zealand they've got a head of steam they're coming in their confidence is high they're feeling good even their media is being nice to them for the first time in God knows when so you know everything is great and they've got to take on they've actually pushed them all the way to the limit I think over time they will start beating India in those scenarios and Pakistan in those scenarios I think it's one of those things you develop that killer instinct because the difference between winning and losing comes down to those one percenter sometimes and if you're not used to doing it sometimes it takes a while to get into that winning man well, you know that, that kind of killer instinct but both sides rather threw away their one percenters right at the beginning of Pakistan's <laughs> innings didn't they both both going for reviews that were frankly farcical um, the result being that Pakistan had nowhere to go and most importantly neither did Afghanistan so after a rebuilding exercise Mujibur Rahman taking the wicket of Fakhar Zaman right at the beginning of the run chase of the second ball thereafter partnership developed but uh, there was a clear court behind that Harris Sahel got a little tickle to, couldn't refer. There was a clear LBW later on in the piece that uh, Afghanistan were able to refer. Uh, they Again, they shot themselves in the foot really through impetuosity with the use of their referrals. But, and it's a big but, I guess what I want to ask you is how much did, did Pakistan's run chase, what did that tell you about 
the pressure of tournament play and the pressure that Pakistan are under because there's there's two bits of credit to give here there's Afghanistan's tremendous spinners and Nabi, Mujib and Rashid Khan towards the end of that well throughout it but towards the end of that game they made that game what it was but also Pakistan's decision making which just became berserk I mean, we saw a couple of extraordinary runouts. So I mean, one of them, when Shadab Khan's running back to try to be on strike, sure. he's got Imad Wasim at the other end, who's just taken over for 18, and for some insane reason, he wants to get back on strike. Loses his wicket in the process. I mean, this is scrambled brains, isn't it? It made terrific theatre. Well, Shadab is technically an all-rounder, and I know he backs himself, but... I, Imad's at the other end, Imad's, of 40-odd not out. <laughs> Imad played that, that kind of golden innings in the end. I really do think it was very much in the balance until Wahab Riyaz hit that six. And he was always lining it up, and everybody knew yeah. it. The Afghanistan players knew it. They had three fielders in the deep on the leg side waiting for that exact shot. This everybody was, this watching. Was, this was, we should say, when, when I think 16 required of 11 balls. That's right. And he, he aimed a big swipe yeah. off the first ball of Rashi Khan's over. He'd missed it. And then we knew he was going to do the same thing. And then that just relieved the pressure, got things down to 10 off 10. A runner ball, Gulbadin didn't respond quickly enough, didn't bring the field in quickly enough. And, and as a result, Pakistan got over the line. But there were so many. I mean, look, we could do a two-hour podcast on sure. this match because there were so many different separate incidents, incidents where the game could have turned. There was a drop catch by Shemwari. There was the extraordinary... Pirouette miss from Asghar Afghan. Yes, of course. Imad Wasim. The ball circled in the the air. In what will be known in Afghanistan as that Gulbadeen over. (laughs) (laughs) Because when Pakistan needed 48 or 5 with four wickets in hand, I mean, that really did feel like the goose was cooked at that point. It did. That over was absolutely fundamental. I mean, the area that I was uh, kind of just pitch side watching the match, I could hear a lot of Pakistani fans making, in many, many choice terms, their dissatisfaction with Pakistan's performance known. And, uh, you know, in multiple languages as well, Dan. I've got to tell you, Punjabi is a beautiful language. (laughs) You know, you can express yourself very nicely and subtly and quite crudely all at the same time. So, I mean... People were that that it did seem like they were done, and you know we're, um, we're thinking that like, people are already working out scenarios with what would need to happen if we lose this game to still qualify. What maths do I need to do? What kind of Pythagoras yep. theorem do I have to learn now to understand what the <laughs> what their scenario is? But I mean, like the fact that they did come through, the fact that they actually held in. I mean, all too often we've seen this Pakistan team fold under that kind of pressure. All too often we've seen this Pakistan team just not be able to handle it and do a very, you know, they call it that that Pakistan, you know, that Pakistan in air quotes, the one that just folds. And for them to just hold, hang in there, hold on and put their team in fourth place in that table, that is very heartening. It's very promising. I can't imagine in, under any other circumstances that I would be this thrilled about a win over Afghanistan. It should be right. With, with the greatest of respect to Afghanistan as a team, Pakistan should always be beating Afghanistan. So for them to well, push so close and still pull out the win yeah. and for people to have the sense of satisfaction... We say always. Volumes. We say always. I mean, I think in, in, in years to come, um, Afghanistan can only benefit from games like this. And they will... They will win some of these. I mean, they've been pipped in two 50-50 encounters and they've been pipped really because because their opponents panicked a bit less than they did because they're a bit more experienced than they've played in a few more of them. But you've touched on Pakistan going to fourth on the table. They've gone ahead of England. Their eerie sequence that mirrors 1992 continues. Loss, win, abandon. Loss, loss. Win, win, win. They win one more which is against Bangladesh, that could be enough to see them through. But it won't be if England beat India 
and New Zealand. That is that is really the equation for Pakistan. We could yet have a winner-takes-all game where Pakistan play Bangladesh. Yeah. Bangladesh have still got to play India. The, these permutations are for then. But just on this game, um, once again for me, it highlighted one of the really wonderful things about this World Cup, which was the crowd, the way they were so absorbed in the match. Uh, I mentioned it on air, but you, you, when you watch a lot of cricket in England, a lot of the time, the, the fans, while they come along to the game, aren't necessarily 100% engaged with the minutiae of the match. Here, every run, every drop catch, every every incident was greeted with blaring horns. There was, there was absolute concentration on what was going on. There were times, I've got to say today, when things spilled over a little bit. There was um, a documented incident outside the ground uh, where fans scuffled with each other, which doesn't tend to happen in cricket matches. Passions got a bit heated and at the end we had a, a bit of a pitch invasion it was quite an amicable pitch invasion it's got to be said it was just one of those things where people wanted to express themselves it, uh, people are urged not to do that for a whole host of reasons and it, it wasn't entirely helpful but um, it does tell you something about the atmosphere here I hope that it was it was fervid it was exciting it was engaged and it just spilt over a little bit here and there as it has been for all of the Pakistan matches. Like, the atmosphere has been electric. That noise that you hear. I mean, the only game that surpasses the noise I heard today was the Pakistan-India match, right? When they came together, it was like a whole different kind of crescendo at Old Trafford. But this was incredible how they can sustain themselves for seven hours. It was the hottest day of the year, Dan. I mean, you've been in this beautiful air-conditioned studio. We're pitch side, right in the sunshine. We've got to be in the sunshine for the correct camera shots. So we're there just absorbing all that heat all day (laughs) long and it's hot and you just think how do you have the energy to blow into a vuvuzela and a horn all at the same time and why do you have to do it three feet from my face but (laughs) either way it's like it it was incredible to see that energy they've brought it every single time regarding the pitch invasions like it's very it's it's documented it's made very very clear to spectators what the consequences are for doing that and they have to face those now but I will say that the people that I saw jumping onto the pitch, I would have to say probably rank amongst the least threatening looking pitch invaders. Absolutely. Since, absolutely. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Not, let's not overblow this. Of this course. Was, this, wasn't, this was not an incident of, of, of any of sort malice. of sinister yeah, or, yeah. Of, of intent or malice. Exactly. It was it was excitement that bubbled up and went went too far. But uh, it was a bit like the, the game, really. The game sort of bubbled up and went too far for both sides. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there'll be two shell-shocked teams in that uh, change, uh, change rooms tonight. I think Pakistan, I think, will be massively relieved. We saw Safaraz come out before his interview and run the full length yeah. of the of the ground to yeah. go and, uh, you know, give thanks to some fans and run back again. And you don't do that normally when you beat Afghanistan. <laughs> you, you do that because... You're you're saying how relieved you are, don't you? This is what this is what I'm saying. Like I shouldn't be this happy, this Mm. relieved, uh, to have to to see Pakistan defeat Afghanistan. It should be a routine thing for this team. Obviously, with the greatest respect to Afghanistan, they've improved exponentially. They've become a much better team. But I don't think today necessarily was a reflection of how good they are as a team. Rather, Pakistan's you know kind of inconsistent, irritable, just kind of. I don't know. It's very hard to describe Pakistani cricket. Like you run out of an adjectives, and you think you need to create new ones. Maybe this is what slang was invented for. But they just—they 
frustrate you to the point where you just think, how did you do that? How did you turn what was supposed to be a foregone conclusion? Maybe it should have been a run fest. Maybe it should have been, you know, a, a, a bowling clinic. Maybe it should have been a very short game. But somehow it turned into like a nail-biting match that had every single person glued to their seats, watching the action, people with arms raised in prayer. You know, it was, it was, it was intense. Um, Pakistan, therefore, go ahead with this win. Go ahead of... England, they go ahead of Bangladesh. I'm going to give Atif Nawaz the nightmare scenario because he's smiling so much <laughs> that it's, it's only right that we bring him back down to earth. Bangladesh lose to India, let's us say. England lose to India and England lose to New Zealand. Pakistan play Bangladesh in their last match at Lords. Bangladesh win it and they go through on net run rate because at the moment their net run rate is vastly better than Pakistan's. There is a nightmare for you to take to bed with you tonight. Just be, I'll take another thing to bed with me again. Just let me know, who's number five in the list at the moment? Uh, well, that is England. And who's number four? Oh, it's Pakistan. Wonderful. <laughs> Let's leave it that, that. The TMS Podcast, available every day during the Cricket World Cup. Daniel and Atif, thank you very much. We'll have more on Australia's win over New Zealand at Lords in a while. Plus, good news in our quest to find a listener to the TMS Podcast in every country of the world. But as Dan and Atif were saying, that result puts more pressure on England to beat India at Edgbaston on Sunday. Jonathan Agnew is there for us. Well, thank you, Simon. Here at Edgbaston, both teams have been going through their final preparations. There's injury news about Jason Roy and Jofra Archer to monitor. Johnny Bairstow's outspoken comments to reflect upon. And, of course, England needing to sort their game out and win. So here's my chat with Owen Morgan. Well, Owen, um, here we are again, and it's another crucial, crucial match for you. Yes, it is. Um, it's going to be a tough challenge, and a challenge that we're looking forward to and excited about. Uh, we're getting to the latter stages of the tournament and the group stage, and, and we need to start winning games. So tomorrow's another opportunity to try and produce a performance that, one, is good enough to beat India, but two, also uh, a performance that I think justifies, you know, performances that we've put in over a significant period of time and, and uh, a performance that you can be proud of. Yeah. Have you ever put your finger on where, where things aren't going right? I mean, is it purely the pitches, the conditions, inability to chase? You've been playing on really sort of firm, hard, good chasing pitches for four years and these are a bit different? No, I think it has been a different challenge. Um, but we've said coming into the World Cup, we, need, we, we have played on, on wickets that have been a little bit indifferent, a little bit stoppy, potentially don't suit our A game and that's fine we have become a better side at playing on those types of wicket but, but we do need to be on top of our game in order to give us the best chance to play our best cricket on those types of wickets and we, we haven't been playing our best cricket um, there's nothing in particular that we're, we're, we're complaining about the wickets we, we did plan for things like this it's just our performance hasn't been up to scratch and it, it will have to be tomorrow to beat India yeah. Well, your boss, Ashley Giles, has declared that's the best pitch he's seen in the World Cup. <laughs> that puts some pressure on you. Well, that's bloody great news. If, <laughs> if it is, and well, it, it's it is. true, yeah. um, that's great news because it'll just be down to performance. And you know, obviously our best game of cricket lends itself to quite an expansive, expressive uh, performance and, and the games that we're used to playing in. So if it is, that's, that's good news for us. It allows us to, I suppose, not fight our natural game a lot um, and, and just play. Yeah, and team-wise, I mean, I was asking about Johnny Bairstow's comments at, uh, the other day. Um, I mean, that, that doesn't reflect the wider view. I, I assume that, that he feels people aren't wanting England to win. No, absolutely not. Johnny's obviously entitled uh, to his opinion. Um, 
as an individual, your experiences can be completely different living at one end of the country to the other. The guys have spent a lot of time away from each other at home, so various different experiences probably for him have influenced his, uh, I suppose, comments. For me, there has been an unbelievable amount of goodwill, good faith, great support uh, up and down the country for me individually and I think for the team as well. Um, you know, I live in London where there's a completely diverse uh, cultures, races, religions and literally everybody has come up and wished us well uh, on their, on behalf of who they're with or, or, or just passing by in the street and it's it makes playing in a World Cup, a home World Cup so much more special and it makes, you know, tomorrow's game that much more exciting. Yeah. I mean, people reading that might worry that there's some sort of siege mentality in the team. I mean, that's that's not the case. No, not the case at all. Not the case at all. Um, uh, like I mentioned, Johnny's entitled to his comments. They've probably been affected by uh, somebody saying something or criticism from a critic, which they're entitled to their own opinion as well, but absolutely not. I think collectively as a group... Um, we do feel the, the goodwill and good faith going around. Good. Uh, Team-wise, selection-wise, um, Jason Roy, love a conversation about that. How's he coming on? Yeah, Jason is progressing nicely. Um, if there are no hiccups, we're, we're thinking he will be fit um, and providing there's no significant risk to him going forward, he'll be available to play. Yeah, essentially the significant bit. I mean, it, 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 is, is there a bit of holding a breath with, as far as he's concerned or not if he does play? I think uh, Hammies are such a... Uh, I suppose difficult area to uh, diagnose how long people are going to be out for or how quickly they can recover. Um, Jason has recovered very quickly. Um, there's a conversation that, that's uh, ongoing between myself, Trevor Bayliss, and, and, and the medical staff about you know if, if something does happen again, how long it's you know it's potentially out for. If it's a couple of weeks, you know it's not a big risk. If it's months, then that's when you know a question needs to be asked. But at the moment. He's looking like he will be fit. Okay. And the other injury question is, is Joffre Archer. Yeah, Joffre is the same. Joffre didn't bowl yesterday. Just likewise, Chris Wokes, but uh, Chris is not a not a worry. He was more preference to, to take a rest. Um, Joffre uh, still has the same niggle that he has played in the last three games with. He felt it a little bit more towards the end of the Australia game, um, but obviously he's going to bowl today, and we're going to reassess at the end of training. And again, if we can get through training today and, and, and the warmer tomorrow he'll be fit to play just a last thought it'll be more like Bangalore here I think than Birmingham tomorrow <laughs> I mean, is, is, is that a good thing in a way is it going to get you going um, I, to be honest we'd never we'd prefer obviously uh, the stadium to be full of our fans but it, it's just not going to happen um, I recall a Champions Trophy final here 2012 or 13 um, where it was like Bangalore and, and, and I think every time we do play India it is an away game for us regardless of where we play but that's just the nature of Indian cricket and the following that they have it, it is magnificent for the game um, it shows the level of passion and, and spirit and interest that it, it provokes around the world from, from an Indian of every, any nationality um, so let's hope you know, tomorrow is a good day for us well, that's my conversation with uh, Owen Morgan. Lots to reflect upon there. I'm delighted that George DeBell from ESPN Cricket Info, a man who knows this ground particularly well, uh, is here to go through all of that. Um, where should we start? Should we start with Johnny Bairstow? I mean, I think quite an important thing to, that Morgan was making clear there is that it's not a sort of a siege mentality that's within the team. I mean, Bairstow's comments, Morgan's very keen to say, don't reflect how the team is feeling. No, I, I think you have to remember what 
Johnny Bairstow's like, don't you? Do you remember when he scored that century in Colombo at number three and he roared to everyone as if he were somehow silencing his critics, of which he hadn't had any? So I think Johnny is a man who needs to invent adversaries so he can prove them wrong. And I don't think he represents the views of anyone else at all. Uh, And it's a shame he seems a bit chippy uh, when he does media because actually he's a a very nice, easygoing guy, I think. But I don't think his comments were terribly helpful. Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the key word, I think. I mean, helpful, because people are looking at England and saying, well, can they? Can they sort their game out? Can they win these two games? Can they go flying into the semis and, and beyond? But if you are hearing comments like that from one of the leading players, after all, I think people have got a right to be concerned about that. Yeah, and I think it, it does come at the, just after Owen Morgan's slightly prickly press conference. So, uh, yeah, and they've played slightly nervously. They have looked a bit nervous, haven't they? Look, we've been building for this tournament, everyone in England, for four years. uh, And it's not just about the team. It's about reviving interest in English cricket. There's a huge amount on these lads' shoulders. And a couple of times it's shown. Yeah. Can can you believe, actually, now, here we are, that England are in this situation? Yeah, because, you know, we've been watching English cricket for years. Are you kidding? It's been a lot worse than this, hasn't it? I actually don't think they're miles away from finding their form. And I still think, look, it's it's four games uh, and they could win the World Cup. I mean, they're miles better than they were at the 2015 one. So I'm not hugely surprised. And although I'm not massively encouraged by the way they've played, I, I, I actually still think they can do it. How much of a gamble do you think they're going to take with Jason Roy? Because they're, they're clearly desperate to get him back. Hamstrings, we know, is, is something that he's got a bit of a record uh, with. Time's ticking away. What, I mean, do you think that it's going to push him out there? Yes. <laughs> they are, and it is a risk. I, mean, I do feel sorry for poor old James Vince. Mm. I mean, how must he feel? They're basically saying, well, what about it, James? But a guy with one leg is better than you. It's, it takes yeah. me back to those days being picked last in school. Yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, a situation where they are going to take the risk, if at all possible. He's been batting quite a lot in the last week. Maybe it's only in the field that he'll have to be careful. But it shows that they're a bit desperate. I mean, they do have to win tomorrow, really. I know there are scenarios where they can get by if they don't, but really they have to win, don't they? Yes. And he is one of the best players. What is it, five times he's past 50 in his last six innings, including two centuries? James Vince has got 40 runs in the tournament. It, there's no comparison, really. But you're asking a lot for a guy who's been out, not had a proper bat in the middle. Yeah. And he is a bit of a form player, isn't yeah. he? he, he it's an expectation. But people will say, oh, great, James Vince is back. Right, go out and bang us 100. But he hasn't you know, batted in a match for a couple of weeks. Right, and, and, and against a very, very good bowling attack. And I suspect on a pitch where he'll be expected to go hard quite early. Yes. Right, well, tell us about that, because you, you are Mr Edgebaston. Um, Ashley Giles has said that's the best pitch of the World Cup that he has seen so far. No local bars, George. <laughs> Do you think he's going to be right? Um, it depends what you mean, because some people don't like pitches which are too batsman-friendly. But this, I think, at last, will be the sort of pitch we were anticipating before the tournament, the sort of pitch where 350 might not be enough. So, uh, and, and the difference, of course, is just that the sun's come out yeah. and the groundsman's had an opportunity. So I know people, I, I read all the papers this morning, people think it's going to turn. I don't think it will. I think what happened here in 2013, the Champions Trophy final, if yeah. you remember, that was, a, a, it was the same groundsman, but he was very new. And I think he would probably admit he got that one slightly wrong. And now he really knows his stuff. It's a baking hot, hottest day of the summer, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and look at it. It looks absolutely fantastic already. So I think it's going to be full of runs. They're good bowling attacks, of course. I just wonder about that. England obviously want it to be a good batting track. That's the way they play their best cricket. But they are bowling against you know, Virat yeah. and Rohit Sharma. 
does seem a bit of a risk, doesn't it? But anyway, they're getting what they want. Absolutely no excuses. Yeah, I think it would be a, it should be a very, very good batting yeah. wicket. And as a last thought, I mean, what this ground is going to be like, uh, it makes you tingle, really. I mean, it's going to be absolutely rammed with Indian support mainly. Uh, and that, again, is something that England are going to have to, well, have to soak, soak that up. Yeah, of course, and it's it's a brilliant thing. I mean, we know that this uh, the game in the UK is kept alive by Asian enthusiasm. So that's something that should absolutely be embraced. Uh, I don't think it will be a hostile environment at all. I don't think it was at Tre- um, yeah, Trent Bridge, the mm. Pakistan game. I just thought it was, a, it was a nice environment. Look, what we wanted before the World Cup started was games with context, games with consequence. Yes. We didn't want lots of dead games. Mm. So as uh, the ideal scenario is that it's a really exciting game and probably for the World Cup it probably needs England to go through, I think. And actually for the game in this country, I think we also need that. But that's a different thing entirely. I think it's... I'm really excited by it. I genuinely, we see a lot of cricket, don't we? Yeah. And you're not always excited by tomorrow's no, game. No, you know no. what I mean? But when, when the result really matters, it makes a difference, doesn't it? And they are terrific sides, so it's a real feast of cricket. And, uh, yeah, brilliant. Real pleasure to be here. George, thanks so much for your company. George uh, DeBell, of course, from ESPN Crick Info. There we are, Simon. Uh, we're all set up here. I must admit, it's going to be uh, a, a really, really uh, exciting day. But just those fitness tests, first of all, before a ball is bowled, on Jason Roy and Jofra Archer. From BBC Radio 5 Live, this is the TMS podcast at the Cricket World Cup. I guess, thank you. Commentary on that game on 5 Live Sports Extra, Radio 4 Longwave and the BBC Sport app, where you can also watch highlights during the match itself. But after this game here at Lords, Australia sit top of the table with 14 points from eight games. It doesn't mean they're going to finish top, but there's a good chance that they will, or they're giving themselves every chance to do that with India in second place on 11 points and ultimately a comprehensive victory for Australia by 86 runs. It felt like a good toss to win from Aaron Finch and he decided to bat first on what was a used pitch and Australia sort of ground down New Zealand gradually. Had to recover from 92 for five with Carey making 71 and Kawaja 88 and then Mitchell Stark got to work along with Jason Berendorf. Stark again with five more wickets and he's been magnificent again in this World Cup and Berendorf has been a revelation as well in the matches that he has played of late. Two for 31 to go with his five wickets against England at Lords a few days ago. Jim Maxwell alongside me and also Jeremy Coney. Jim, I mean, Australia, they, they, they seem to know how to play these World Cups. They're looking good. When they get into the strangulation mode, as we saw today, uh, their, their confidence is surging. And at, at the moment, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to them playing against, uh, I hope it, it's someone like India in the semi-finals. Um, maybe South Africa will cause them a problem or two, but they get better with every game. We, sh- we saw their resilience today, 5 for 92, to come back from that awkward position with the most remarkable innings from Kerry. I'm no I'm surprise there that he's got man of the match because he was fluent, 71 from 72 balls, and Kawaja comparatively struggled 88 off 129, and, and Kerry dominated that century partnership, uh, which was the, the turning point of the game. Up until then, New Zealand had a very good chance of restricting Australia to a total that they may well have chased. It would have been interesting if Australia made 180, 190 to see, in fact, whether New Zealand uh, could have attacked that target uh, with a little bit more aggression than they showed 
in the early part, which eventually set them back. But at no stage did their batting ever look like it was going to come to terms with the, the pitch and the bowling. One real positive for Australia today is it's all been all about Finch and Warner so far. I've scored mm. a thousand runs between them, but they were out early today, 38 for two, and Australia still won comfortably. They still got a score together as well. Well, and, and Smith went too. So you have to say congratulations to Alex Carey, who's, who's batted uh, with as, as much confidence and form as anyone from the Australian team when, when he's been called upon in this series. So that's the most satisfying feature for Australia. Uh, and the fact that Kawaja did get the chance to play in innings. Uh, you could almost say thanks to Warner and Finch for not putting on a big score today because Kawaja needed that time out there. So from a sort of preparatory position of what's to come, it was, a, it was a very good day for Australia. But with the ball, they're showing more and more evidence of a team that's got the variety and the strike power uh, that's going to be very hard to get on top of unless it's an absolute belter of a surface to bat on. Jeremy, New Zealand at, at times with the ball were good, 92 for five Australia, but that is a, quite a tough defeat to take, isn't it? It's a, it's a big defeat, 86 runs. It damages their net run rate. It might not come to that at the end of the, the group stage. What, what did you make of New Zealand today? Uh, I think they missed a trick uh, uh, with the with the handling of the attack, the strategy, if you like. Once having a, a side like Australia at 92 for five, you never let your foot off the throat, and you have a, you bring back your fast bowlers. And if it means that if they're not got out at that point, that means your lesser bowlers remain perhaps towards the end of the 40 to 50 overs. So be it. At least you've had a crack at it. I've seen it time and time again, they get away on you and that things like that happen. So I thought that was just, just poor management of the attack, actually. There is, a, there is a growing concern, I think, about the spin component of New Zealand playing on slower pitches. They're just not doing the job, the two spinners that were selected. Santner has, uh, has picked up uh, four wickets for 213 runs at this stage and New Zealand would have liked him uh, a great deal better on these surfaces that he would have picked up more wickets and created more opportunities. He'll be very frustrated. He only bowled three overs today, went for 23 runs, so seven and a half and over. And it was because he was swept. Kawaja got stuck into him with the reverse sweep. So did Carey. Got him, so either his line was not quite or he wasn't either prepared to zero it in on the pads or, you know, he's got to do some things and learn how to cope with that because he is not... I mean, if he doesn't bowl for New Zealand, where do, what, are they going to use someone like Santner? Sodi went for sixes today. He's been kept out of the team until today. And suddenly he's thrown probably a game late. Really, he should have been playing at Edge Bunsen. And, and he's, <laughs> he, he wasn't successful there. And so, you know, so he wasn't used. So he came, he was brought in here. Didn't work. So suddenly the captain again has left to bowl seven overs and bowled seven overs for 25, even though he hasn't bowled. So there is a whole issues surrounding that and how New Zealand going to approach that, that spinning component in the rest of the matches confronting them. So, so management and spin bowling. I thought Ferguson did his job OK. Bolt was OK today. I thought even de Grandom went for only sort of fours, and even, but he shouldn't have opened the bowling. 
frankly, young Ferguson, the virile fast bowler, should have been used. You know, I mean, that, he had bowled... He had bowled, say, someone like Warner out when he went to Australia, just with a bit of extra pace. Why don't they give him a crack? You can always pull him off and then bring in the Grandom. I think they do things the wrong way round. The TMS Podcast, available every day during the Cricket World Cup. Right, Jim and Jeremy, thank you. Andy Zaltzman alongside me. Now, you're not happy. That man of the match award is going to another yes. batsman. I'm slightly less unhappy than I was the other day when um, Finch got it in the Australia-England game when clearly... Probably Stark should have had it, and maybe Berendorf uh, today. Both of those, you could make an argument for Berendorf's two early wickets shaping the game. Uh, but Kerry did bat um, very well, particularly in the context of the game. He hit uh, 11 fours in 72 balls, one every 6.5 deliveries. There were only uh, 24 other boundaries in the entire match. Everyone else scored a boundary every 20 deliveries. So he scored boundaries three times as often as everyone else. So it was a strikingly good innings, albeit only 70-odd on the scorecard. Uh, but um, Stark, well, I mean, again, five for 26 and not man of the match seems... A little bit harsh. Um, I guess he, could, he didn't bat very well, did he, um, for his, his golden duck? Um, his uh, stats, as we keep talking about, are completely extraordinary. He's got 24 wickets in this tournament. Three more will take him past Glenn McGrath's 26, which is the most ever by a bowler in a World Cup. He had 22 in eight matches in the last World Cup as well. So 46 in 16 matches. Only one other bowler has ever taken more than 35 in a 16-match streak in in World Cups. Uh, they're almost mind-bending uh, his uh, his stats in this uh, in in this tournament. He's taken that was his, uh, the 18th time he's taken forfeit in uh, one international cricket in 83 innings. Of the 13 other bowlers with 13 or more forfeits, they've all played at least 160 matches. He's uh, he is a truly extraordinary force in uh, this format of the game. I don't know. Now, I'm pleased to say we're making good progress in our attempt to find a listener to this podcast in every country in the world. After Scott Reed and Charles Dagnall went through the list of countries we still need last, like mangling most of the pronunciations, we've been in good form getting a few more ticked off overnight. Akish Kolka, I wanted to email in and announce my support from Q8, having finished a three-week project here for work. I'm so glad to be back in London in a few hours to watch the England versus India game on Sunday. Also, Swadin Sangram Swain and Lionel Hooper have got in touch, who are also listening in Q8. Uh, Novi Paulson says, I'm flying to China, but I am over Afghanistan listening to the podcast. Does that count? No, it does not count. However, Anjuman Mahanti, who refers to himself as the nomadic Indian, says, I was recently on a trip to Afghanistan. I listened to your podcast from Mazari Sharif, which is a few hours' drive from the capital, Kabul. Uh, so, yes, Afghanistan's now been ticked off. Also, says Anjuman, India is going to win the World Cup. Stated as a bald fact, we could all now go home. Well, I thought Australia were winning about a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> but they got a good chance, well, both of them have. Christopher Calvacaresi. I'm on my way to Saitomi and Principe, I think. In the absence of a radio stroke television, I'll be relying on the daily podcast to keep me updated with the tournament. The route to Saitomi takes me via Lisbon and Accra in Ghana. Whilst I believe these countries have been ticked off, I'll be sure to be listening to the latest podcast when we fly over Benin. Well, we're not counting Benin, apparently, but we are taking Saitomi and Principe. Yes, airspace, I'm afraid, does not count. Um, Chris Hogg has just sent us an email entitled Vanuatu Podcast Listeners with no words but a picture of himself in Vanuatu. We are we are taking that. That is now ticked off the list of Vanuatu where I believe Prince Philip is a god, officially. He's near god everywhere. 
Well, not officially everywhere. <laughs> no, that's probably true. Uh, David Watt, just been listening to your latest podcast and your continuing search for listeners in all the countries of the world. I now have access to my emails and have just returned from a wonderful holiday with my wife to celebrate a significant birthday for me and our 30th wedding anniversary. We were touring the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania highlighted in bold the last country is i believe still on your rapidly diminishing list we've ticked off lithuania not anymore tom giles i'm currently listening in helsinki finland where i'm having a quick weekend break i remember finland was on your list of missing countries for weeks uh, and i was hoping i'd fill the gap but unfortunately it was not to be however i may still be able to help you Uh, always that you can't give up on these things my best friend is uruguayan and i know uruguay is one of your missing countries his parents are currently back in uruguay visiting family so could this incredibly tenuous link count towards your total not unless you make them listen to this podcast then yes none of them are cricket fans well just ditch them for your life they're not worth having cluttering up your busy time if they are not cricket fans and uh, i highly doubt uh, continues tom I highly doubt they will listen to the podcast. They're lost, so this could be as close as you you get. No, no. Make make them listen, introduce them to cricket, and change their lives for the better. For the last time, <laughs> it doesn't count unless they listen to the podcast in that country. Chris Turner, formerly of Grimsby, living in Singapore and working in the shipping industry. I've enjoyed the podcast and your challenge to cover the world off with listeners. An idea to get the Marshall Islands ticked off, make an appeal for a crew member on board a Marshall Island flagged vessel to drop you a line. Indeed, make a plea to all sailors listening to let you know if they just happen to berth in any of the countries, if that's possible. Good idea. Any sailors out there? Hello, sailors. Get in touch. That's, that's going old school, isn't that? So the early days of cricket touring, huge, great ocean voyages. I mean, the Australians used to be away from home for almost a year when they came here in the, in the 19th century. And we'll have to do that again in the future, won't we, when we can't fly anymore because of the problems with the... Yeah, well, use teleportation. I just email players across the world. I'm pretty sure Chris Gale must have played at least one 2020 league by Skype, hasn't he? So, we have just 33 countries out of the 193 UN member states left, including Uruguay, Grenada, Haiti, Tonga and Venezuela, and still the elusive North Korea. Yeah, that doesn't entirely surprise me. No. Because <laughs> if you were listening, you might not even better contact us if you're listening in North Korea, I don't know. Yeah, there might be an absolute deluge of surface mail stuck at Pyongyang sorting office so that they <laughs> fail to let it get through. What is this? TMS must be some mysterious espionage organised. And they listen to it, they must think all these numbers are some kind of code. And let me let, me let you into a secret. They are. <laughs> right, we've only got 14 days left of the World Cup. No, don't say that. And we've got quite a few countries still to tick off, but we are making rapid progress. England against India, don't forget that. Listen out on Sunday. It's a big match, in case you didn't know. Goodbye for now. The TMS podcast at the Cricket World Cup. Download and subscribe via the BBC Sounds app for a new episode every day.